Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Robert Darden talks with Texas history writers. You'll hear dramatic and often little-known Texas tales. This is Treasures of the Texas Collection. Hi, I'm Robert Darden, Associate Professor of Journalism, and your host for Treasures of the Texas Collection. The impact that Samuel Palmer Brooks left on Baylor University can be gauged by the number of students who, 80 years later, still concentrate their theses and their works and their documents on him. Under Brooks' administration from 1902 to 1931, Baylor University enrollment grew by the thousands. Numerous specialized schools sprouted within Baylor, and Brooks allowed the student population to adopt the bear as the school's mascot. He not only developed a unique relationship with an admiring group of followers from the staff and students, but also civic and community leaders in Waco as well. Brooks was stoutly devoted to human rights, speaking on behalf of all victims who were denied equal education and social standing. He was respected as a selfless human being, one who even during his last days remained dedicated to the progression of Southern education. Freelance writer Corley Sims has spent a lot of time at the Texas Collection researching President Brooks. And, she says, she's found a fascinating, remarkably modern man in many ways. Welcome to Treasures of the Texas Collection, Corley. Thank you, Robert. It's very true. Um, the Texas Collection actually contains a wealth of resources relating to the president. Everything from biographical studies to the Samuel Palmer Brooks Papers, which is actually a large collection of boxes containing letters to and from the president, containing financial statements about the school, educational degrees from his presidency, and documentation of his speeches. The most remarkable documents of these that I found were his speeches. He not only delivered progressive messages of morality and educational development, but he did so with a lyrical quality that flows with poetic grace. His later fluency with language was perhaps actually sparked by an early fascination with the configuration of words and deciphering the intention behind phrases. Goodness, so where did this begin? Do we even know? I actually think this fascination is seen best in the collection of letters that Brooks wrote to his father during his years at the Yale University. After graduating from Baylor, Brooks had gone on to Yale to earn an additional bachelor's degree. The letters that he wrote to and from his father were collected and published by his son, who is Sims Palmer Brooks, and he gathered them together in a book called The Yale Letters from Samuel Palmer Brooks to His Father. Brooks was impressed with the roundness of education that he received as Yale as compared to his previous studies at Baylor. He found that his mind was not only broadened intellectually by the Northern School, but also socially. Hmm. He doesn't go into detail about most of his classes in Yale, but his literary studies really seem to have captivated him, at least enough that he conveyed, conveyed the details of the, these classes to his father. He was so stirred by his discoveries in literature that he sought to pass on those insights in his letters. He actually um, recommended books and poems to his father and occasionally sent home his own school books so that his father might mm -hmm. see, be as, just as inspired as he was. He says at one point, "'The more I read Hamlet, for example,' The more I see in it, and I feel like begging everybody to read it and study it. Not stopping there, but read more and more of other plays. But I am reminded of what Ophelia said to Laertes. 
Do not, as some ungracious pastors, show me the steep and thorny way to heaven, while like a puffed and reckless libertine, himself the primrose path of dalliance tread, and wrecks not his own reed. After citing this quotation from Shakespeare's Hamlet, Brooks concludes, I do not take my own advice as I saw it. <laughs> well, I guess he's not alone there, is he? <laughs> Brooks decided that literature was a study that had really been overlooked in his previous education at Baylor. He says, I think we ought to have studied more the thing themselves and the history incidentally. He vouched for the educational value of some of the greatest composers of his time, including Tennyson, Emerson, Longfellow, obviously Shakespeare was one of his favorites. And he said about these men, the more I read these men, the more I find history, literature, art, and philosophy wrapped up in the poetic masterpiece of these giants. Even the language in Brooks' very casual letters to his father show early signs of a man who would evolve into an inspiring orator. You know, what I've read about Brooks leads me to believe that he was an equally adept speaker as well, and that people hung on his every word. Very much so, yes. Um, the speeches during his career as president exhibit a style that flows with elegance, a style that you know really would have impressed those authors that cultivated Brooks so much in school. One of his most notable speeches that really caught my eye when I was going through all those documents was a speech called Climbing Down Fool's Hill. In this speech, Brooks talks about how a very morally sound man is descending from the peak, and the shallowest of men are clambering up to the top of this peak, and hence the name Fool's Hill. Brooks explains, The young man, self-centered, whose only assets are ancestry and good clothes, is going up. The young man who counts himself not save as by good merit, who counsels with the experience of himself and that of others, whose will is commensurate with his opportunities, whose honor is unspotted with evil, such one is climbing down. Brooks' metaphorical draws on morality seem to kind of echo the Psalms, you know, speaking the truths of life through a very poetic expression. He doesn't condemn the man on the top of the mountain, but he identifies his placement on the mountain and then offers hope for the man's departure from Fool's Hill. Well, from what I've read, Brooks was a highly religious man all of his life, right? He was, yes, and his speeches incorporated a very ministerial quality as well. His speech of On Fool's Hill continues as he classifies the men traveling this hill. He says that those going up have lost family value and become lost in their ego. It is the men who are descending the hill, void of grief and filled with selflessness, who will conquer the hill and make their way back to an ethical and fulfilling lifestyle, he says. Brooks' respect for women and his belief in their equality also come to light in this speech. He says, When a young man thinks that all girls are crazy about him, that he has to dodge their attention, he is high on the heights where fools dwell. When he pays respectful attention to girls, recognizing them as his equals, comes to see that they are losing no time or sleep thinking of him, he has found himself climbing down where dwell the sensible. Let a young fellow underrate the character of a woman, let him besmirch his own character, thinking it is allowable or tolerated by respectability anywhere. He is going up fast. But let him think every woman is as pure as his mother. Let him know that he must prove himself, be, be as pure if he would be worthy of the love of a woman or of God, and he is putting fool's heights to his back and sanity's level to his front. You know, Corley, that's, that's pretty good advice. I mean, that sounds pretty modern in that regard. He is actually very modern, very before his time, especially in this speech. And he didn't finish there. Um, he continued by saying that, 
Climbing down Fool's Hill would take a man who is completely committed to a higher, better purpose, not simply going through the motions. And then he ties all these metaphorical ideas back to college education at the very end of this speech by saying, The college student who thinks that by attendance to every duty he will grow into wisdom's ways is facing from the hill of folly. The farmer lad without money, whose only asset is good health and a purpose, who is boom-proof from discouragement, having set his face towards college, is climbing down to bedrock. Beautifully said. Obviously, I guess Brooks was a thoughtful man, and, and, and things like this really mattered to him, do you think? They did, yes. Brooks believed that social humanity and selflessness, you know, the characteristics of the man who is descending Fool's Hill, working hand-in-hand hand with education would lead to a greater society as a whole. An educated man without civic responsibility was merely a disappointment, he believed. In a commencement address later, Brooks claimed that education is not a fad. Tell me the kind of school people have, and I will tell you what kind of people they are. Poor is the teacher, and irreconcilable is the preacher, who has no thought of social altruism. Man cannot be decent in any work of life unless he can rise to make his job a bit of social service. Well, again, this is an address that could be delivered to today's college students right now. Exactly, yes. Brooks was a man far beyond his own time on the human rights front as well. He spoke on behalf of grouped victims like women and blacks who couldn't receive um, equal education. And he also fought on a personal level, as he did many times for his deaf brother, who he felt wasn't given equal opportunity due to his deafness. Um, The early signs of Brooks' intolerance of human degradation is illustrated by a letter to his father that describes the horrors of hazing that he witnessed at Yale. He writes about how the students at Yale would take the freshies to the saloon, strip them, shampoo them with lager beer, make them drink lager mixed with sweet milk, and then smoke until deathly six. Meanwhile, they would cheer, the class of 96. Many of them are sons of senators, congressmen, judges, ministers, millionaires, dudes, fools, And it seems to me, devils. Strong words. Very. (laughs) Brooks was disgusted by both the ritual and the town's apparent support of this humiliation. He says the hazing was reported by the local papers just for amusement of the audience and to furnish fun for all the readers. The sad thing is, college hazing has only been abolished in recent years. And it still stubbornly endures in a lot of places, from what I understand. Not just jail. Yes. And one of the interesting things that he pointed out was... um, the odd contrast between the intellectual side of the school and the activities the students pursued during their free time outside of school. He says, You will understand that whatever exalted idea you may have of scholarship of its professors, you have not overshot the mark, he says. The professors at this school have traveled extensively and were to be taken as authority on their subjects. But strange combinations go in the name of religion, he says, referring to the freshman hazing and the other morally corrupt behavior he witnessed at the school. Texas schools were below par with the level of scholarship exhibited at Yale, obviously, but richer in moral fiber, he said. I see as I never saw before that Texas and the South need schools that shall offer the advantages here given without those elements that drag men to hell. (laughs) He says that Baylor ought to cling sacredly to her religious dogmas and examples, yet at the same time shake off a little dust and offer more advanced methods of teaching. Interesting. You know, Samuel Palmer Brooks sounds like a man born to be a college president. I think many would agree, given these letters and his speeches. Um, He was actually born during the Civil War. 
and he had watched as America slid into this industrial age, observing how the north and south portions of the country separately adapted. He traveled the northeast and discovered a people who were more intellectually and economically advanced, and he believed that the gap between the north and the south could be closed through broader education in the south. He says that more general education is the only remedy that I can see that shall prompt our people to see how far they are behind. The land is no better, not as good as the red hills of Georgia. Yet while the Georgian is resting and waiting for the Yankee to make his goods, the latter is rapidly getting rich and every day enjoying more of life's luxuries than our people have on holidays. He says this in the Yale letters to his father. Interesting. He defended Texas against those who stereotyped the state as a conservative and unenlightened territory. He believed that um, with the right measures taken, Texas could rival the advances and progression of the North. He says, Texans do not live in a corner. They are neighbors of the whole world. They do not think provincially. They think world thoughts. They are a composite people. Oh, I like that. Yeah, good things for Texas. Um, He addresses the educational flaws of Texas education in comparison to the North, but he ensures that he is confident improvement will be made in the South. He says, Progressive citizens taking the long look are determined to provide education for all Texans. As our citizens have grown in refinement and prosperity, so have grown the homes, urban and rural, and all creature comforts and cultural advantages. Our women through federated clubs are progressive in all their plans to this end. They can draw a map showing their work for social betterment. So one could go on recounting the varied activities of Texans, fraternal, social, or political. Lay all the maps recounted above each other and one has a composite whole, a composite picture of a cosmopolitan people. Bravo. Now that's a speech. Thank you, Corley, for bringing to life this modern Renaissance man. Sounds like um, maybe we all need to read a little Samuel Palmer Brooks every now and then. Thank you much. Now remember, as we begin our second story, that Samuel Palmer Brooks came to Baylor as a teacher in 1897. And if he had been reading the Dallas Morning News, and brother, everybody read the Dallas Morning News in those days, on the morning of April 17, 1897, he would have seen this stacked headline. Flight of the airship. A Mississippi traveler saw it in the heavens last night. Mr. Griffin's strange story. He saw the aerial traveler on top of the courthouse, was overjoyed. Sensation in railroad circles. Freight conductor J.E. Scully caught a glimpse of the ship and its pilot near Hawkins' tank. Now that's some headline. But then, this was some story. Fifty years before the events at Roswell, New Mexico, made the term UFO, unidentified flying object, a household word, we had them in Texas. And for the next few days, Texas newspapers reported on little else. The newspaper noted that suddenly reports were coming in from everywhere and all about this amazing airship. One observer said that the craft looked like, quote, a magnificent bird of passage. A Mr. M.E. Griffin at the Dallas courthouse said he saw, quote, the ship gliding through space like a thing of life. But by far the most detailed description came from conductor J.E. Scully, nicknamed Truthful Scully by his friends, and, wait a minute, was it one of the characters in the X-Files named Scully? I thought so. Anyway, this is a direct quote from Truthful himself. Quote, Well, I saw the airship and I could scarcely believe my own eyes. Says I to myself, 
They are seeing it everywhere. What's the matter with taking a peep from the top of the courthouse? Well, I borrowed a powerful glass and climbed to the top of the courthouse. From my position, I could sweep the heavens in all directions. I'd been there, say, ten minutes, when to my great delight, I saw the airship going in a southeasterly direction with the velocity of the wind. It was shaped like a Mexican cigar, large in the middle and small at both ends, with great wings that made it look like an enormous butterfly. It was brilliantly illuminated by the rays of two great searchlights. I shall never forget the magnificent spectacle, and I very reluctantly descended to the earth. Ah, it was a sublime scene. Well, other observers had their own opinions, including one man who was convinced that the airship was between, say, 150 and 200 feet long. Another man was a passenger on the southbound Missouri, Kansas, and Texas train, and he claimed to have seen it as the train passed the town of Garland. Elsewhere, the newspaper is filled with other reports of the astonishing airship. Now, remember this, too. This was a full six years before the flight of the Wright brothers way out in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and this is Texas, in 1897. Meanwhile, the newspaper reports that in Hillsboro, the Honorable J. Spence Bounds described the craft as being, quote, a huge black monster soaring at about a thousand feet above him with light emanating from it. He, too, thought it was cigar-shaped. In Paris, Texas, Several observers that day saw the craft on the evening of April 16. Quote, From what appeared to be at first a luminous cloud, there was now clearly outlined a monster airship. Mr. J.A. Black also described sails or wings stretching out from a cigar-shaped body and the whole craft being about 200 feet long. Mr. Black even offered to sign an affidavit attesting to his truthfulness for the newspaper. The following day... The newspapers continued their coverage. Many more people in Dallas stepped forward to vouch for truthful Scully's honesty. More reports flooded in from McLennan County, Kaufman County, Waxahachie, Whitney, Bonham, Cleaver, and Texarkana, even as far as Beaumont. Everybody, it seemed, was seeing something. The Honorable A.T. Waits of Dallas, who saw the airship briefly, told the reporter, quote, I have a theory. I firmly believe that the 43 Greeks in Texas have clubbed together, purchased a serial airship from Thomas Edison or some other fellow, and are experimenting before starting to Europe. Well, the Honorable Mr. Waits declined to identify either the 43 Greeks or their supposed business in Europe. A Mr. Patterson in Waxahachie said that while it may be, quote, funny to look at the aircraft from a distance, he said an uneasiness came over him as he got closer. He attributed the uneasiness to a, quote, satanic majesty and suggested that perhaps Beelzebub, quote, has something to do with this traveler in the lower stratum of the ether. One of my favorite reports comes from Mr. Hildreth, who said that he saw three men in the ship and that he heard them singing, Nearer my God to thee, and that they were distributing temperance tracts. And so it goes. The craft, which apparently shows up mostly at night, traveled, it seems, across most of the state on a second consecutive evening, with at least one diversion to Hope, Arkansas, where a telegraph operator said he was blinded by a light at 11 p.m., which I assume proves everything. But back in Hillsboro, several more farmers who lived about five miles south northwest of town stated that they saw something even more amazing. Quote, <clears throat> 
They were surprised as they were working by the sudden appearance from the skies of what seemed to be bodies falling, but which upon a closer inspection proved to be a man and six boys descending from the skies. Quote, they drifted down as easily and gracefully as birds alighting until within a few feet of the ground, about 50 yards from the farmers, where they remained stationary a few seconds and reascended into the heavens out of sight. Each of the farmers, again, naturally, attested to the truthfulness of his fellows. Now, on April 19, still more sightings appear in the newspapers. Only now, some are beginning to get just a little weird. Judge Love and a man named Beatty claimed to have encountered the craft near Chambers Creek in the Dallas area about dusk. The ship was being attended by five or six men, they told the newspaper, who told them that they were from a previously undiscovered landmass at the North Pole. Now, I'm not sure what the good judge and Mr. Beatty were doing by Chambers Creek, but it may have involved alcohol. But that's just a guess on my part. A number of people in Ennis, however, were sure that the arrival of the airship marked the beginning of the end times, since there were plenty of wars and rumors wars happening all over the planet at the time. According to one, quote, pious lady, as the reporter described her, and I quote, Every nation except Tibet has had the gospel and messengers are trying to get there. When that is done, the fullness of time will have come, and the Lord will most likely appear in a second coming. Now, my question is, who knew that Tibet was the key? Not me. By April 19th, however, the story apparently comes to an end, either in Aurora and Wise County or in Stephenville, depending on who you believe. In Stephenville, a Mr. C.L. McElhaney claimed that the famous airship had landed on his farm. Dozens of people in Stephenville said that they had seen the ship in its final hours before its touchdown. There, two men, a pilot and an engineer apparently, emerged from the cigar-shaped structure to make repairs. The men spoke briefly to the crowd of onlookers, expressed satisfaction in their work, reboarded the craft, and then flew away. Never, it seems, to be seen again. But is the Aurora story that seems to be the most definitive? Well, I guess I have to say at least the most enduring. According to reporter S.C. Hayden, the craft, whatever it was, crashed into a windmill belonging to Judge Proctor, destroying the aircraft, a water tank, the judge's flower garden, and the windmill itself in the process, and scattering debris all over the farm. A number of Aurora's most respected citizens trooped out to the farm to survey the damage. According to reporter Hayden, quote, the pilot of the ship is supposed to have been the only one on board. And while his remains are badly disfigured, enough of the original has been picked up to show that he was not an inhabitant of this world. T.J. Weems, the United States signal officer in Aurora and a self-professed expert on astronomy, said that the deceased creature was from Mars. Also found scattered around the crash site were, quote, papers belonging to the creature, quote, written in some unknown hieroglyphics. Now, just how Mr. Weems knew they were Martian is probably beyond the scope of this or any program. Anyway, citizens from Aurora and tourists continued to trek to the judge's farm for days to see the wreckage until the judge finally grew tired of it. He then threw the remaining pieces of the aluminum-like craft into an old well and sealed it off. The creature, whatever it was, was buried in the Aurora Cemetery, but a few years later, someone stole the marker. 
So today, no one is quite sure where in the cemetery he, or I guess it, is. Sightings of the cigar-shaped aircraft of 1897 dropped off dramatically after that. Whether the Stephenville or Aurora aircraft were one and the same or two different aircraft, nobody knows. And similar sightings were recorded in Washington State, Northern California, and throughout the Midwest in the weeks leading up to April 16. So what is that all about? Today, there is a historical marker at the cemetery in Aurora. And old-timers there for years have called the judge's story a hoax. Apparently, the old man liked to tell tall tales. But what about all of the sightings from reputable people throughout Texas in April of 1897? From across the state, the descriptions were remarkably similar, especially in a day before television or telephones or even the Internet. Maybe the answers to this and other such questions are in the Texas collection now, waiting for someone to uncover them for all time. You never know. I'm Robert Darden, Associate Professor of Journalism, PR, and New Media at Baylor University. And I've been your host for another edition of Treasures of the Texas Collection. For more information about Samuel Palmer Brooks or the strange craft that buzzed Texas in April 1897 or just about anything related to Texas, you'll find it at the Texas Collection at Baylor University. Or visit us online at baylor.edu slash lib slash Texas. Treasures of the Texas Collection was made possible by generous grants from the Wardlaw Fellowship Fund for Texas Studies and the Ferguson Clark Endowment Fund. This has been a production of KWBU FM 103.3 Waco, Texas. Thank you.